My name's Bob Drake. As you can see, I'm an old white guy and a geezer. I'm over 70, uh, but I'm still interested in what you folks were do are doing. I um, helped start the uh, ACT teams in Boston many, many years ago, and I spent uh, 40 years or so uh, working um, in community mental health and in shelters and in uh, public clinics and public hospitals and um, uh, court diversion programs and so on and so on. Um, for the last 20 years, I've been working a lot in employment, and I'll tell you about that and I'll tell you why and so on. So um, I'm a psychologist by background and then a psychiatrist, but for the last uh, 20 years or so, I've been running research centers, but have continued working with uh, uh, ACT teams and in uh, homeless shelters, as I mentioned. I'm very interested in what you folks are doing, and um, I think we are going to be helping all of the uh, teams out here to implement uh, support employment, and that's what I'd like to talk about a little bit uh, today. Um, I won't, I won't show slides and I won't talk about research. If anybody's interested in the research part, you, we can stay afterwards and I'll be happy to go over that with you. So why employment? Why should you think about employment? When I was um, young and uh, I studied uh, case management and ACT teams and suicide and homelessness and treatments and medications and psychotherapy and so on. Um, and I always thought that employment was something over here on the side that was peripheral or related to what we did in mental health, but I didn't see it as a mental health intervention. Uh, and I'll tell you some stories about how that changed, but about 20 years ago, I began to realize that, hey, people who go to work get better. <laughs> uh, you know, it really surprised me. And I now think that rather than being over here as an ancillary intervention, employment is the most effective intervention we have in mental health. The most effective intervention we have. You know, if, you, if I had just a little money to run a service and, and I've worked with uh, people out in the uh, bush in Africa and in the uh, um, uh, rural areas of India and uh, Peru and other places on this where, you know, they're very limited funds. Um, you know, if you can teach the family how to manage the illness and help the person find a job and provide them with just the basic generic medications, People do pretty well. <laughs> they may do better than they do in our, you know, modern society, loaded up with 15 medications and uh, um, lots of hospitalization and incarceration and everything. I think there are ways in the U.S. that um, over-treatment uh, actually uh, makes people worse. But but that's another topic. We'll talk about that if you want. Let's talk about employment. I, I want to tell you that I have no background at all in employment. I, you know, I just fell into this by accident. My first experience with, you know, support employment is simple, you know. We 
talk to the person, help them figure out what they want to do. We go out and help them get that job, and we do whatever is indicated to help them succeed in the job. I mean, it's incredibly simple. And we can teach almost anybody to be a good employment specialist if they got the courage to go out in the field and talk to employers and you know work with uh, clients. Um, so that's what support employment is. My first experience with support employment was like a total disaster. So I'll tell you about it. I was uh, this was back when I was young, you know, about a century ago, and I was um, going to a meeting in in uh, D.C. with you know probably NIH or some other haughty toddy group, and I was um, thinking as I was headed down there. I used to, I used to always worry that uh, the people in D.C. would figure out that I was a real country bumpkin, which I actually am. I grew up on a farm in rural Florida, and so I I stopped at an airport somewhere. I think it was Pittsburgh, and I had a long wait, and so I noticed that my uh, shoes had you know, were not shined and there were threads sticking out all over the place. And so, I, well, I'll just jump up here and get a quick shoe shine. So I, I jumped up and the guy was a very nice guy, you know, I was uh, kind of interviewing him. And I could tell right away that, you know, he was one of our clients and uh, a good character. Anyway, uh, at the beginning he said, you want me to get rid of some of those threads for you? And I said, yeah, that's wonderful. So he whips out a little Bic lighter and he lights these threads and they burn right down to the shoe. It was incredible, you know. I thought, wow, this is the best intervention I've ever seen. So he gets rid of all the threads and I'm complimenting the heck out of him, you know. And uh, so then he shines my shoes and I think he was feeling so good, you know, that I got a triple shine, you know, with all kinds of uh, lacquer and everything on them. And so I said, oh, that's wonderful, you know, thanks so much. Uh, and I was getting ready to give him a big tip and all, and he says, oh, wait, wait a minute, I see one more thread. And he pulls out his lighter and he lights this thread. Of course, by this time I had, you know, 20 pounds of, uh, of synthetics all over my shoes. And so when he lights this thread, they burst into flames. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I have this ball of flame all around my shoes, you know. And I'm thinking, oh no, what am I, <laughs> what's gonna go on now? And, and this uh, guy, and you know, people were starting to gather around because I had this kind of blue glow of flame around my feet. It's starting to feel a little warm and this guy says, oh, I'll take care of it, I'll take care of it. And, you know, he's trying to put, put out the flames. And then he doesn't really know what to do, so he opens his drawer and he has all these rags and he's gonna stuff them on my shoes, you know. So he puts the rags on the shoes and of course, they're all filled with these same fluids, you know. So when he puts those on my shoes, the whole thing blows up, you know, <laughs> like this. And he gets shot back into the uh, audience. And meanwhile, my pants and socks are burning. <laughs> and uh, there's a big crowd around, you know, and I'm thinking, hmm, this is a bad way to die. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, some guy comes running through the crowd with a fire extinguisher and, you know, squirts all over and saves me and this guy. Um, so that's my story. It was a very good competitive employment job for this guy. 
I had to go to DC with, you know, my pants, trousers were burned. <laughs> everything. So I looked even more a bumpkin than usual, but that's, that was okay. <laughs> okay, so then uh, a little bit after that, this was about nine, 1980s, I, I was a research director for the state of New Hampshire for a while. And for financial reasons, they decided to close a day treatment center. Uh, and the director of mental health, uh, and there was a huge uproar about this from the clients and the families and the clinicians. The director said to me, well, would you evaluate this for me, Bob? And because I'm gonna promise them that if things go really badly, we're gonna reconstitute this center, you know, we'll pay for it again. And I said, sure. And, uh, so I, f I found another center 60 miles away that was e exactly the same size. Uh, and we interviewed all the clients and clinicians about, you know, well, what are all the bad things that might happen? You know, people would commit suicide, become homeless, go back to the hospital, end up in jail, et cetera, et cetera. And we uh, interviewed everybody at the beginning. And then they closed this state treatment center completely. Uh, and they sold the building, uh, they transferred all the staff elsewhere, uh, and there was no, I mean, they went from having day treatment to not having day treatment center. And a year, and we interviewed this other center, and then a year later we came back and we found all of those clients and we uh, interviewed them again. Um, and the research interviewers came back to me and said, well, Bob, we really can't find any negative outcomes from this. In fact, almost all the clients say they're doing better. And I thought, how can that be? You know, let's, maybe we didn't interview them in enough depth. Let's go back and talk to the clients and the clinicians and the families. And so we did that and I did a bunch of the interviews. And sure enough, everybody, almost everybody was doing better. We, there were a small number of people who were saying they missed the social opportunity of the uh, day center. And, uh, but almost everybody was doing better. Uh, and in the parallel center where the day treatments uh, program stayed intact, everybody was exactly the same. No progress one way or, one way or the other. Um, and the striking thing in the center that closed a year later was all the clients said, well, you know, I've really found something to do that I like a lot better. And it turned out uh, like 55% of them had gotten a job. So, <laughs> you know, they're out there working rather than, you know, watering the plants in a day center and helping to cook lunch. Um, and so, uh, well, you know, and by the way, we presented the results to the second center that hadn't closed and they said, well, this really sounds interesting. Why don't, we'd like to do a little bit of both. So we'll have the day center open in the morning and we'll do, uh, and we'll have an employment uh, program in the afternoon. And we'll see what clients choose, you know, cause we always try to be client centered. So they did that a year later 100% of the clients had dropped out of day treatment and almost all of them were in the employment program. 
and they had also increased their uh, employment rate to 50% or so, you know. Um, and this really was the most stunning thing in my uh, career. And I finally realized, well, being in a day center is a little bit like being in the hospital. You know, it's a segregated setting. There are people around telling you exactly what to do and making decisions for you and so on. And, uh, you know, maybe we're making people worse uh, by rounding them up in this kind of way uh, rather than helping them to get better, which is what we're trying to do, of course. Uh, and since then, uh, there have been a whole number of replications of this study in other states and in other countries. And the, the, the finding is really consistent, you know. Um, if people stay in hospitals for a long time, they get worse. If people stay in day centers for a long time, they get worse. And if we can just offer them opportunities out in the community, they can get a lot better. And then the second thing I took from this was, well, how in the world did half of the people get jobs? You know, and it turned out there was an employment specialist in the mental health center. Once the day center closed, the, she helped uh, all these people get jobs. So I started um, studying what she did. And at the same time, the state directors uh, said to me, you know, every year when we do a survey, Bob, the number one goal that people say they have that we're not helping them with is employment. And we don't really know what to do. Could you, could you help us with that? And, and at that time, employment in New Hampshire for people with serious mental illness was about 10%, which is what it is around the country still in most places. And so I said, well, I don't know anything about employment really, but I'll, you know, I'll um, look into it for you. So, and I hired a couple of people that knew more about employment. But you know, what I really did was to go around and talk to the experts in the country, uh, including people here at UCLA and BU and other places, and ask them to tell me what they knew about getting people jobs and employment and so on. And what I learned from, the, and then we set up a bunch of small experiments in New Hampshire. You know, we tried this and that, and we gave people options and so on. And uh, what we found consistently was, first, all the experts were completely wrong. You know, and, and this is a general finding about clinical wisdom in medicine. Uh, you know, when you actually go and collect data and look at something carefully, it turns out clinical wisdom just kind of gets embedded in the culture without, and until people really test it carefully, they don't know that they're doing the wrong thing. And this is true in heart disease and any, any area that you can uh, think of. But it was definitely true in employment. You know, all the experts told me, well, you know, your people really need nine months of training and goal exploration and all this before they can find a job. And they told me that uh, well, you really need to keep mental health and vocational separate, you know, because they'll contaminate each other and so on, the stigma and all this, and other things. So it, it turned out all of those, those uh, clinical uh, ideas were wrong. You know, they were just myths. Um, and now there's lots of data to show that, um, just like we found in the beginning, 90% of the people know what they want to do. They, they don't need nine months of counseling to know something about what kind of job they'd like. And 
we found out that the more closely you integrate mental health and vocational services, the better the outcomes are because, uh, you know, it's the same team and the same message and the client's getting the same uh, message from everybody and it just works better. So we started working on that and, you know, it was pretty easy to get the employment rate from 10% up to 50%, uh, you know, which wasn't happening anywhere else in the world as far as I could tell. Um, and I had lots of uh, concerns, you know, about that. I, one of the things I was worried about was, well, maybe it's easy to get people jobs, but they don't keep these jobs. And so we started doing long-term follow-ups. And now there are a bunch of follow-ups in the literature following people for five, 10 years. We followed those people in New Hampshire for 16 years. And uh, the general finding is that people, once they get started on a trajectory of employment, they do better and better. And once they're in employment, they tend to drop out of mental health services. So, you know, there's some resistance from the doctors and so on because people don't get don't get rehospitalized and don't need lots of mental health attention because they've got a life they got something they prefer doing rather than hanging around mental health centers or going to psychiatric uh, uh, hospitals and that finding has been pretty consistent around the world too um, and so then the next thing we did was um, we set up what are called randomized controlled trials. You know, that's where you, we took everybody that raised their hand and said they wanted to work. Didn't matter to us if, you know, they had lots of symptoms or they were just out of the hospital or anything else. And we randomly assigned them to get supported employment, which seemed to be much better than any of the other models that we studied, or to get, to go through vocational rehabilitation and get services there. And the randomized controlled trials, uh, first we did one in New Hampshire and, you know, we found huge differences, you know, in the supported employment program. I think 70% got competitively employed. So I, you know, I dutifully go down to D.C. and I tell the NIMH people about this and they say, well, you know, we don't really believe findings from New Hampshire because, you know, everybody is white and wealthy and you don't have AIDS and you don't have drugs and all this stuff. They think New Hampshire is a, you know, Tahitian island or something. And so we did our next study um, in homeless shelters in southeast D.C. Uh, if you've ever been to D.C., you probably haven't been to southeast because it's usually too dangerous for tourists. But we went to uh, shelters and, you know, we just asked people if they were interested in being in this study and anybody that raised their hand, you know, we'd interview them if they had a mental health problem at all, we took them. So we ended up with, uh, you know, a population that was homeless, that was all African-American, that had serious mental illness, wasn't, they weren't in treatment, and they, by the way, had crack cocaine addiction also because that was the popular drug at that time. Um, and I thought, well, this is great. You know, this is sort of the acid test. These folks are definitely not like New Hampshire. And um, to my surprise, we got exactly the same results uh, with these folks in D.C. You know, it was pretty easy to get half of them employed and 
I still see some of those people, you know, they're still working. Of course, you know, once they get a job and they earn some money, then they get an apartment and, you know, their, uh, their uh, world really changes a lot. Anyway, from all of these um, studies and from really just interviewing hundreds and hundreds of clients about, you know, what they wanted, evolved the modern notions of supported employment, which we call Individual Placement and Support, or IPS. Okay, And IPS now has been around um, for about 30 years, and it's gradually been spreading around this country and in other uh, countries uh, around the world. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute, but you know, it's the it's the dominant employment model now in about 80% of the U.S. states and in 18 other countries around the world. So it's amazing to me that it's kind of spread so fast like that. But I think it's because this is what our clients want. They really would like to be independent and to make some money and to have uh, a life doing something uh, meaningful. and the IPS model, because it's entirely client-driven, seems to work and helps them to reach those goals. Okay, so over time, uh, Debbie Becker, who's really the one that designed this intervention, and uh, Gary Bond, who's another colleague of mine, have really worked hard to define, well, these are the principles of IPS, here's a manual that shows you exactly how to do it, here's a fidelity scale that you can use to make sure that your program is doing it, here's how you provide uh, training and technical assistance, and so on and so on. But the whole approach depends on, rests on uh, eight really simple principles. And I'll probably forget a couple of them without having a slide in front of me, but let me, I'll just tell you in general what it's like. First of all, you know, we take everybody. Anybody that raises their hand and says they want a job, we sign them up. And that's because uh, we found out early on that the predictions of mental health clinicians and the predictions of vocational rehabilitation assessments were totally no good, you know. I mean, one of my own clients that I thought, this guy is the last guy in the world that is ever going to get a job. You know, I, he seemed to be always brain dead to me. You know, just sat there doing nothing, saying nothing. And to my great surprise, the guy went to work as soon as he got offered, uh, you know, supported employment. And he's just worked more and gotten promotions. And he still works at a, he works at a bank in our little town in, um, rural New Hampshire, he's got an apartment, a car, he's got a pass to the skiway, you know, uh, when I took my kids up there, you know, he said, hey, Dr. Draken, <laughs> I barely recognize him because he looks so different now, you know, he's really got a life. Um, so anyway, we, we take anybody that wants to sign up. And, and over time, we've learned that um, there's really no predicting who's going to succeed in employment. Uh, you know, the diagnosis and demographics and symptom levels and co-occurring substance abuse, none of these things predict. You know, 
people with those kinds of problems who are homeless, so on, tend to do as well as anybody else. And you know that as well as anybody else means that within a year, about 60% of them will get a competitive job. And over the next five or 10 years, about 50% of them will become steady workers. And you know, really, and once they become steady workers, you know, all the data show they improve in all these other areas. They make more income, but they also have more, you know, greater self-esteem. They report greater quality of life. They are more integrated in their community. They control their symptoms better. They stop going to the hospital, et cetera. And, that, and that's why I say it's really the most effective intervention that we have in mental health. Okay, so we take anybody. Um, then we um, try to assess people pretty quickly and help them to start looking for a job uh, right away. You know, usually within the first 30 days. So it's a matter of getting to know the person and figuring out what they like to do and then doing a targeted uh, job search. I'll just give you a little example here. We had a young guy with schizophrenia come into our clinic um, a couple years ago. I think he was 17 or 18. He never worked a day in his life. Very psychotic, paranoid. And, uh, you know, when I interviewed him, I was kind of skeptical about this guy's ability to work because he didn't really have any skills that I could tell. Um, and he had a lot of problems. But the employment specialist uh, uh, interviewed this young guy, and she says to me, oh, yeah, you know, he's got real skills. Uh, he has um, a dog that he takes care of wonderfully. So that I've been over to his house, and I've watched him do all this. You know, he'd be terrific working with animals. So our team gets together. And we say, okay, let's see if we can find this guy a job working with animals. And, and this is how we do a targeted job search, which is another principle. You know, rather than going out and looking for any job, we say, okay, here's a young guy who wants to work specifically with, you know, small animals. And let's, what kind of job can we find him? And so a couple of people on our team say, well, I have pets. I'll, I'll ask people at the pet store. A couple of people say, well, you know, I take my dog to this vet. Another guy says, I know a vet over here. I'll ask them about it. Another lady says, well, you know, I rent a house on the farm. I'll ask the farmer about this. And within a couple weeks, we turned up three job possibilities for this guy. And we you know, took him around to interview for these. And he chose to take the job at the pet store, not the pet store, at the veterinary clinic where he, his job was to come in on the weekends and nobody was there so he didn't have to worry about being around people. And he would, um, you know, wash the animals, feed the animals, take the animals for walks, sometimes change their dressing. You know, they taught him to do more and more uh, stuff over time. Uh, and he loved this job and he was very good at it and the, Veterinary clinic staff loved him because most of them didn't want to work weekends. Um, and then over time, they liked this guy so much, they got him to work some, you know, during days in, uh, of the week. And, and then he made friends at the vet clinic, so he actually had, you know, some friends in the community. And uh, he really did amazingly well over time. But 
you see the uh, he was the assessment was very quick and it's a rapid job search that's another principle and it's a targeted um, uh, job search you know you find a job that that really fits who the person is you know ideally it's the person's interest it's the person's skill it's something that's going to help them control their symptoms uh, you know it's just going to be a good fit um, another principle by the way is that once we help the person find the job then we stick with them for a while and make sure that they can succeed so like for this veterinary clinic the employment specialist went in and worked with them the first two days, the first two weekend days, to make sure that he understood everything and he could do everything and he could lock up the clinic and all that. And she was satisfied with that. And after that, she really just checked with him once a month and she called the head of the clinic once a month to make sure that everything was going well. And if there had been problems, she would have intervened right away. But this, this guy didn't really uh, have have problems. So you see it's, it's rapid job search, it's targeted, and it's, um, you know, supports on the job. And the key thing, I think, is that the job fits the person. You know, it's not like, I visit a lot of vocational programs where they say, oh great, you know, we've got 20 jobs at Walmart collecting carts. Well, you know, that's not usually the career choice for most people collecting carts at Walmart. And so rather than finding a bunch of jobs that are available, you know, we want to go out and create or find a job that really fits the person. I could give you lots of examples, but let me just give you a few because when I visit these programs, I always ask them about, about this and I'm amazed at how clever the employment specialists are. But um, there was a guy up in New Hampshire, a famous guy who was very psychotic and spent most of the day screaming at his hallucinations. And so you wouldn't get this guy a job in the office, right, because he's screaming <laughs> all day long. They got this guy a job in a sawmill where everybody, you know, it's really loud. Everybody wears these earphones. This guy could scream all he wanted. No, it didn't bother anybody at all. They liked him there because he did a good job. Um, I had a, one of my patients uh, who I have to say I was never able to figure out how to help. Uh, she was one of these ladies, and, and nor was anybody else in the mental health system, by the way, <laughs> able to help her much. But she was one of these ladies who um, uh, cuts herself up all the time, you know, a frequent cutter, and I'm sure she diagnosed borderline and all these other things. but. Um, in any case, uh, she had been in lots of fancy hospitals in Boston, and she had um, been in lots of therapies and hadn't really done very well. Uh, so an employment specialist met with her because she kept, you know, she would try to go to school and she'd try to work and she'd lose the jobs immediately, you know, because she also had a tremendous temper. When she wasn't cutting herself up, she was yelling at other people and didn't fit in well in most uh, job settings. Well, anyway, the employment specialist um, got this lady a job in one of the research uh, laboratory buildings, and her job was to come in at night 
and she would go around and she'd find the animals that had died during the day or during the evening from the chemotherapy and other things they were uh, given to them. She would find the dead animals and her job was she would cut them open and dissect out all their organs and weigh their organs and lay all this out in a tray, you know, for each animal and label things. Doesn't sound like a fun job to me. Most people wouldn't like this. She loved it, just absolutely loved it. And she was a big success in this job. Uh, and she stopped cutting herself. Uh, and she didn't get in fights at work because nobody was there during the night when she was there doing this work. Um, I really think it saved this lady's life, you know. Um, it was an amazing thing. Um, I'll tell you one more and then I'll, I'll stop with the stories. But, uh, so I went out to Chicago recently and I was working with this employment specialist and he says, oh, I, I gotta tell you about this guy uh, I've forgotten his name, but anyway, this guy was the son of a big mafia family in Chicago, right? And by the time he was 18, he had a rap sheet <laughs> about like this. He had been arrested many times. Uh, he, I mean, he also had schizophrenia, and so you know, he was definitely somebody with mental illness. So he wasn't very good at all these crimes. He kept getting caught. Um, and so the employment specialist said, well. You know, you have to check in with the police all the time, and they need to check in with you all the time. Why don't we just get you a job in the police station, and we'll save everybody a lot of time. And this guy thought that was great, because he had made friends. A lot of these cops had, you know, enjoyed this kid and realized he wasn't a bad kid. And so uh, they gave him a job in the police station, and he delivered mail and did all kinds of things and uh, was friends, and it, you know, it worked fine for years. Uh, you know, it was easy for them to keep track of him and it was easy for him to check in with all the people that um, he was supposed to uh, be, uh, who were supposed to follow him. Okay, so let's talk about some other principles. One of them is that uh, the vocational services and the mental health services really should be part of the same team. So, you know, this fits nicely into ACT teams or other team-based approaches. And the idea here is that, um, you know, you want to have a team, like I described, help find the jobs, but you want to have the whole team uh, on message. You know, one of the things that we often find is, well, the doctor doesn't ever meet with the team. And, you know, we're trying to tell this guy he can work, but the doctor's telling him he can't work. And, uh, and that he's going to lose his disability payment, and so on and so on. Well, that, that, does, that doesn't help, you know. So you want to have the whole team meeting together and, you're, and with the client and deciding what we're going to do and be on the same uh, message. Um, and I, I know, uh, having been a doctor on some of these teams, it's often the case that when people start working, they, want, they need to have their medications cut down a little bit so they're not so sedated and, you know, or the time of taking them change or something like that so that they can work and uh, function a little bit better, which is, you know, all a good thing. I mean, I'm usually trying to cut down medicines rather than increase them. Nowadays, everybody's so over-medicated. Um, so, you ha so it's a team-based uh, approach uh, like that. Um, 
Another principle that I think is really important is that um, we make sure everybody uh, has the benefit of, of uh, benefits counseling, okay? And the reason for that is, as you all know, I'm sure, um, disability systems are incredibly complicated nowadays, and people and their families are often afraid that, uh, well, if he goes to work, he's going to lose his SSI payment, or he's going to lose his housing voucher, or he's going to lose, uh, you know, this, that, or the other entitlement. And most of that's not true. Um, but the system's so complicated that you want to make sure that, uh, you know, the client understands these issues before they um, take a job so they're not surprised by anything. And as it turns out, almost everybody can work half-time or more and keep the money and keep their disability payment and they're much better off financially and they never get uh, in any kind of danger of losing their disability uh, payment. So most of the fears of that I think come back, come from back in the 80s when the Reagan administration, uh, you know, tried to throw lots of people off disability and there, you know, there was a huge uproar and that will probably never happen again. But um, still, having a benefits counselor uh, that's available to you somewhere, and I don't know how that works here in California. In many states, there are professional benefits counselors through the VR office or uh, somewhere else. And in some of our studies, we actually pay for training for a benefits counselor in the mental health center on the team so that uh, you know, it's readily available. And of course, many of the employment specialists learn all this stuff. And there's a computer program now that uh, you can use to determine this, and it's adapted for the state you're in and the rules in the, uh, uh, in the state that you're in. So benefits counseling uh, is important. Um, maybe the most important principle of the model is that uh, it's based on client preference at every stage. You know, if when the person says he's ready to work, that's the time to help him get a job. You know, don't you don't want to say to somebody, "Well, I'm, that's great. I'm glad you're ready to work. We want to put you in a six-month training program so that you'll develop some skills." Well, they, they'll drop out before they get through the six months. So, uh, the person says when they're ready to work. They say what kind of work they want to do. Almost everybody knows something about what kind of work they might like to do or what, they, what activities they like. Um, the amount of time they want to work, the um, kinds of supports they're going to need on the job, the um, disclosure to the boss, you know, and are, are we going to go in with you to Enter uh, to the interview with the boss to help you, or do you want us to stay in the background? There are a whole range of choices that that have to happen, and we take the client's lead on all of these things. Even, I mean, when things are uh, illegal or clearly don't make sense, you know, we try to pay attention to that. So, uh, you know, we often have people who have. Uh, you know, a drug use disorder and they want to work in a hospital or in a pharmacy or, you know, where there are lots of uh, controlled medications around and that's probably not a good idea. 
And even more common is um, there are lots of jobs out in your community where people drink and smoke dope all day. Um, and you know, I know those jobs now in my community because I've learned about them through the clients. And if your client has an alcohol or marijuana problem, you know, that's not a good uh, place for them. Uh, you know, you want to avoid those kinds of jobs. And, and so you, know, you would say to the client, well, look, I think this is really a bad idea. I would like to help you find some other kind of job. You know, if you insist on going ahead, then go ahead and interview. But that, that's not really a job I can help you find because, uh, you know, I think it would be a conflict for me legally and ethically and all. Um, and most people, you know, really understand that. I used to work with uh, doctors who had addictions and you know, those guys are under surveillance all the time, you know, with, with impaired physicians programs. Uh, but it's really important for them to get a job away from, you know, lots of cocaine and other things uh, sitting out uh, for medications. Uh, they shouldn't be working in emergency rooms anymore. They shouldn't be working in anesthesia anymore. Uh, you know, it turns out almost everybody who works around drugs like this has a, is at risk for addiction. You, I, you probably know that. Doctors, nurses, pharmacists are, really have high rates of, uh, of uh, getting into trouble with drugs. Um, so I think I've probably covered all of the um, principles. You know, the ideas about follow-up are, are really important, I think. Uh, there are a lot of employment programs, including the ones that VR and Department of Labor run that have very time-limited services, you know, so they'll help somebody uh, find a job opening and they'll send them off for the interview and then if they get employed, they're done. Um, and, and that doesn't really work for our clients because, uh, you know, many of our folks are sort of new to the job world and they like teenagers almost, you know, they try three or four jobs before they find the one that really fits them and that they want to stay in for a long time and that they want to develop a career in. And many of these young people that we work with in the, uh, you know, now we have a lot of transition age youth uh, programs and many of these young people um, will work for a little bit, go to school for a little bit, try to do both, you know, and so Again, we, you know, we take their lead on that, but it involves staying with them, with them over time. Uh, you know, it might take them uh, longer to finish school because uh, school's hard. And it's especially hard if you're trying to work at the same time. But if that's what they want to do, you know, we have had a number of people uh, get through school programs. Um, so you want to stick with people, you know, for a year, two years. Often when people are really steady in working, um, they don't need an employment specialist anymore because case managers following them up once in a while anyway. And if they lose their job or something, the case manager can drag the employment specialist uh, into things again. So people who become good employment specialists uh, come from a lot of different areas. You know, we've seen some who have been case managers and they really like 
they, you know, they like being out in the community and they've seen their clients do well working and they really want to learn about that. We've seen some who are like social workers and they have similar kind of experience. And we've seen a lot of people who have a background uh, in business somewhere. Now, the, I think the, in every study that we've ever done, there's always one employment specialist who gets 100% of people jobs. Just, they just know what they're doing. And one of the best ones I ever saw was this kind of gruff lady who had uh, run a construction business herself. And she didn't put up with any nonsense with anybody, and she knew how to talk to employers. And I mean, if she would, if she didn't care what the diagnosis was, you know. She would, I've heard her say to uh, guys, okay, listen, you want a drink? That's your business, but don't do it on my time. <laughs> We're, <laughs> you're gonna go to this job sober, and <laughs> you're gonna be sober at the end of the job. <laughs> Anyway, she was a tough character, but you know, tough love, just really the warm, warm lady. But, and she just knew, I think from having been a business person for quite a while herself, she knew about all these different kinds of businesses, you know, and she really uh, could find a job for anybody. And she, and in this long study we did, we sent her all kinds of people and she got 100% of them successfully employed. Um, there, you know, the skills are, uh, really have to do with um, being comfortable being out in the community and being comfortable uh, talking to employers. Uh, you know, I, a few years ago, Debbie says to me, she says, Bob, I don't think you really understand support <laughs> at all because <laughs> you've never done it. And so, uh, so she talked me into doing job development one day a week, which I did for three or four years. And I just love doing it because, you know, you go out there and you meet all these employers and you figure out how to get to the person who's hiring and you figure out how to get around the computer applications and you figure out how to learn about the job and you figure out how to help the client get ready for an interview. And I was surprised, one of the things that surprised me is the boss at the thing, I, I would, when I, I would go, you know, talk to the boss first if I could, and the, I would say, uh, well, what are you looking for when you hire people? And they would tell you, well, I ask them this, this, and this, and this is what I want to hear. And so, uh, you know, we were, you were able to use that information to coach the person to go in and apply for a job and know exactly what to say. Well, people handle it in different ways. And I, I think that um, I used to, when I did this, I said, um, look, I'm a job developer and I'm helping young people who, have, uh, who are looking for jobs and I'm helping employers who are looking for young people at the beginning of their career. So, you know, I really want to work with you as an employer to find the kind of person you want and I want to work with these young people to help them find the kind of job uh, they want. And I didn't say that I worked for a mental health center. I think I said I worked for Dartmouth. Um, but a lot of the employment specialists will say, you know, I worked for a mental health center. Uh, and, and what I hear is that employers, well, it's illegal for them to ask, well, what kind of disability does the person right. have, right? right? If you do say, well, you know, I'm working with people who have been out of work because of a disability, but they're healthy now and they're looking for a job and doing well. 
they're not allowed to ask you what kind of disability, and, and nobody ever does in the, in the practical world. Employers, you know, we've done a lot of research on talking to employers and trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, they just want good employees. And in some places, they want a warm body because <laughs> it's hard to find employees nowadays. So there, you know, there are employers out there that, have, that don't ever do uh, drug testing, and there are employers that have dropped doing drug testing, you know, and there are employers that offer people jobs and along with addiction treatment, <laughs> they say, well, I'll hire you, but I want you to <laughs> go to this group and, you know, make sure you keep your, you know, uh, clients are often afraid of disclosure, you know, because they think, oh, well, I don't want you to disclose. I, you know, they, they sort of have this fantasy they're going to hand over their, you know, 100-page mental health record. And so you tell the client exactly what you're going to say. Is this okay? And you also help, even more important, you help the client learn what to say. You know, so we did this one study where we interviewed about 100 employers and we said, well, do you ever hire any people that have been arrested? Do you hire people that have been in jail? Do you hire people that have had a felony? And what do you want to hear them say if they have that background? Uh, exactly what do you want to hear? And so that's in our manuals now, and we train the clients to say what the employers uh, want to hear. Well, it's nice to meet all of you, I, and you know, uh, we'll be here helping to implement IPS for the next few years, and I hope to run into some of you again. Thank you. Mm -hmm.